persons not difficult to love. And Ray Knighton is one of them. I love him all of them. <laughs> Great, big, wonderful brother. Now, uh, I figure that this will be pretty much a captive audience. And uh, I mean by that that I will be speaking to the same persons every morning for the three mornings that I shall be here. Therefore, I want to make, before I take my text and speak, I want to make a few preliminary remarks which will not be repeated for the reason that uh, everybody will have heard of them. One of them is that the messages that I want to bring to you are by request. All preachers are edgy about repeating sermons. But uh, the theme the man God uses, which uh, I gave that banner, seemed to please uh, some people. And Brother Knight in here for one. And uh, they asked me to come and do the same thing here. That will mean, of course, that there will be a slight overlapping. And a few of you will have heard this. But it doesn't make too much difference. I only have one sermon anyhow. I just say different texts. <laughs> and then I want also to mention this and probably not refer to it again. That these messages are not directed to, not slanted to, those interested in missionary medicine. Dr. Emerson, the American philosopher complained pretty bitterly for him that we had lost our manhood and were busy with occupations and professions. He said, nobody ever ought to be known as a farmer. He ought to be known as a man who farmed. Nobody should be known as a carpenter. He should be a man who does carpenter work to keep alive. So, it is when the kingdom of God, God makes victorious saints and then uses them any place. And while there may be gifts necessary for missionary medicine that I wouldn't have to have or that a Christian truck driver wouldn't have to have, there are no graces necessary for missionary medicine that are not needed for a stenographer or a school teacher. Therefore, I shall speak about the man God uses, not the doctor God uses. For if God can bless the man and make a man a man of God, then he can use him any place. He's good anywhere. He's like gold. It can be turned into any use, provided it's gold. Now, in order to do what I want to do, instead of preaching to you in theories, uh, although there's much theory in the Bible, that is, there is much that is, well, not theory so much as abstract doctrine. I, I do not want to talk abstractly to you, because people get out from your net that way too easily. I want to talk about Old Testament characters who demonstrate New Testament truth. I believe the greatest need of the hour is the incarnation of truth in human breath, in human life. And the reason there's so much about biology, or about biography, I mean, in the Bible, is that um, God knew that we had to have our theology with feet under it and hands and uh, heads on it. We had to see it incarnate. 
So I shall speak to you this morning on the man who met God in the fire. Tomorrow morning on the man who saw God high and lifted up. <clears throat> the third morning, I'm not sure. Possibly the man who thought like God. But now we'll turn to the text and read it. A lot of you can, uh, can repeat it without my reading it, but I'll read it again. Third chapter of Exodus, part of it. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh other. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, we see here a great man. But up to this point, his greatness was hidden and almost completely undeveloped. A great career was opening for the man. He was to be so many things that one wonders how God could place down upon one pair of broad shoulders this much responsibility. He was to be under God the prophet. He was to be a lawgiver. He was to be an emancipator setting free a great nation from 400 years of slavery. He was to be the leader of the most important nation in the world, a statesman in his own right, and teacher of the ages. And yet, the man was not prepared for the job. He wasn't ready. He wasn't a young man. And he couldn't lay it to his youth. He just wasn't ready. And yet he had had enough preparation that we would have easily given him an honorary degree and uh, we would have made him head of almost any mission board. He, he could have gotten on uh, just about anywhere because this man was an educated man and all the wisdom of the Egyptians, I take it, that means that he was a Ph.D. and something else. And then he had been brought up at court to know there's only one way to be courtly and that is to be brought up there, I guess. He was brought up in the household of the Pharaoh. And of course, the great potentates and plenipotentiaries and great kings had dangled him on their knees when he was a little boy. And he had grown up in the courtly atmosphere there of that great nation, the palace of uh, the Pharaoh. And then after he'd had his little run in with that Egyptian, uh, he forsook Egypt and refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then he took the postgraduate course, keeping sheep. And I'm serious about this. Uh, God sent him out to keep sheep. 
see if he could undo some of the things his education had done for him. And uh, he took him out among the sheep, the smelly, oily sheep. And there for a great many years he kept the sheep. And he went to school to the sheep and the sand and the silence and the stars. And yet he wasn't ready. After all that, he could have been a poet and an artist and all that added and a philosopher. And still he wasn't ready. God had to do something for him, which he did in this experience here. He had to give him what I've called a sense of sacredness. He had to, uh, he had to stun him and, uh, and beat him down and defeat him with uh, an encounter, a crisis of encounter. This had to come to the man. He had the theory, he had the doctrine, he was smooth and he, he'd had lots of time to dream and to think, but he still wasn't ready. God uh, could, uh, could make him ready only by bringing him to himself in the crisis of encounter. He had to meet God. And so, here, God revealed himself to the man at the bush alone, under the frowning brow of Sinai. He experienced God. Yeah, God revealed himself as fire. Now, I want to mention that a little, talk a little about it. You know, they say that God is inscrutable and ineffable. He's a lot of other things, but he is those two things. You can't get at him with your mind. I'd like to say this to you, but I can't because I haven't the time. But uh, this uh, neo-rationalism uh, uh, that's passing for, uh, for Christian theology and evangelicalism irks me. Because we are trying to figure God out with our heads, and you can't do it, my brethren. You can only experience God. God rises infinitely above the possibility of ever any man's grasping him intellectually. And so God, knowing that he's ineffable, cannot be spoken forth, inscrutable, cannot be reached, dwells in light that no man can approach unto, God sets himself forth by figures and similitudes, and it seems to me his favorite one is fire. You remember that God came to Israel as fire, the fire by night and the bush and by, or the cloud by day, and uh, later on when the temple was built or the tabernacle, he dwelt between the wings of the cherubim as a fire. They call it the Shekinah, the presence of God. And then at Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost came upon those 120, he, he perpetuated that idea of God as fire and carried it over. And each one of those the disciples went out with a flame of fire on his forehead, the same fire, the presence of Almighty God, not some wild, irrational impulse, as some people believe, but the very presence of God is the fire in the Scripture. And now God wanted to show Moses who he was, and bring him into an encounter with himself in experience. Now, if there anybody here that inclined to be shy away from the word experience, I'm not one of them. I believe in experience. You know, experience has been defined as a personal conscious awareness of something by somebody. And uh, that, that, that's how we know. That's how we know. A personal conscious awareness of something by somebody. The somebody was Moses. Uh, and the somebody that he was aware of was God, and it was personal and conscious. He wasn't unconscious. He didn't seep through into his subconscious. He was awake and aware of what was going on, 
and he had an encounter with God that changed him so he never was the same man. Moses experienced God, and from here on, it was no longer theory, no longer knowledge by description that now became knowledge by, by experience or by acquaintance. The uh, Scottish uh, philosopher Carlyle once was walking with the new minister in the garden beside the kirk, and he linked his arm in the minister's arm and said, Reverend, what this parish needs is somebody who knows God otherwise than by hearsay. I'm convinced that a great many of us, even evangelicals, know God only by hearsay. He is what we want him to be or hope that he is rather than what we know him to be by spiritual encounter. And I think a tragic breakdown in evangelical circles is this one, that we have used doctrine as a substitute for spiritual experience. Spiritual experience should be the outgrowth of doctrine. But we make doctrinal, uh, doctrine terminal, and if we can uh, recite the creed and know the notes of the Schofield Bible, we're all set. And uh, we have it, but a lot of people stop right there and never go on to experience God. Bible doctrine is a highway to lead us to God, but there are many evangelicals asleep beside the highway. And because they're on the highway or near the highway, they call themselves evangelicals. To me, an evangelical is somebody who not only believes the credo of the Christian, but who experiences the God of the Christian. And I believe that there ought to be some prophets rise in the day in which we live and declare that God can be experienced, that we can know God, that we don't have to make God a logical deduction from premises, but that we can experience God as we can experience our children. My son came to meet me with four grandchildren at the airport last evening, and uh, I knew they were my grandchildren. I could prove they were by deduction, but I, when they grabbed me, I knew they were my grandchildren by experience. And I believe that God can be known deep in the heart by spiritual experience. Well, God wanted to say some things to Moses, and uh, he did. He defeated Moses here and, uh, and took all the self-confidence out of the man and beat him down and then raised him up. It's always God's way. And uh, some of the things that I think he taught Moses there, and I think he wants to teach you and me, if we're going to be used at all of God, I will give you now. One is that the, the fire dwelt in the bush. And the bush was at the mercy of the fire. That is, it accepted the rule of the fire. You know, when you hold a creed, that's all very well, but you'll never amount to anything till the creed holds you. Uh, as long as you hold the doctrine of God, that's all very well. It's better than being an atheist. But until God holds you and uses you as an extension of his own hands, you're not yet where you ought to be. And this indicated here, or taught us in a beautiful figure, if not in a type, that uh, the fire dwells in the bush. Now, I'm a great believer in the indwelling Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not Christ with you only, though that's true, but Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. The problem of personality, interpenetrating personality, uh, isn't a heavy one for me. I, I get blessed on lots of things that other people don't understand, and I admit I don't either, but they look good to me. And uh, God blesses me, as the brother said, without much provocation. So uh, I... Uh, I get help. I get a lot of help, and there are a lot of problems that I don't have. Uh, 
An Anglican uh, pastor came to me once and said, uh, I'd like to ask you two questions. One, what, uh, what about uh, how do you explain the problem of the eternal God entering time? And the second one is, what's meant by the light that lighted every man that cometh into the world? And I said, Doctor, as for that first problem, I don't have the question, the answer to the question, I don't even have the question. It isn't even a problem to me how the eternal God can enter time's low tabernacle and become flesh to dwell among us. So I waved him off on that. He said, all right, about the second one, then I did have an opinion on that. But the problem of how personality interpenetrates personality was settled for me a long time ago. That is, my head got hold of it. By uh, the, f the f iron in the fire. You put the iron in the fire and blow the old-fashioned bellows and pretty soon you have the fire in the iron. You do not have the loss of either personality. The iron's still the iron and the fire's still the fire, but you have them fused in experience. And if the fire goes out of the iron, you still have the two. So God enters the human breast and fuses his divine, uncreated personality with the created personality that is his child, and they do not become metaphysically or ontologically one, but they become experientially one. The fire, the glowing incandescence of the presence of God in the breast of a man, the, he becomes a little like God, and uh, there's much of God in him and about him. And yet he is not God, and God is not the man. Forever and forever God remains God, and the man remains the man, and yet their personalities are united. Now God was trying to say that to Moses, and he is saying that to us. This is what we need for Christian workers, any kind of Christian workers. And then I noticed, secondly, that the bush was purified by the fire. I suppose that if we were to pass around the questionnaire and ask your definition of sanctification, there are 700 of me, they tell you, and we'd have 700 definitions. For that reason, I cannot possibly allow myself to get involved in, uh, in, in uh, doctrinal disputes over the word. But I believe that God wants his people to be holy. I do believe that. But I do not believe holiness is ever separated from God. God is holy, and only God is holy. And where God is, there's holiness, and where God is not, there is just us. And uh, there's any use to try to make it any otherwise. The bush was purified by the fire. You ever stop to think that all the fungi and every bug and all the larvae and worms and all perished off of that bush? There wasn't a single thing there but bush and fire. And I believe that the presence of God burning in the human breast purifies that breast. And as long as it burns there unhindered, those evils that used to follow us around and be part of our personality will be burned away and there will be nothing but white ash to show where they used to be. I don't know much about medicine, you know. I'm a preacher, and of course I read the Reader's Digest. You an awful lot of medical <laughs> education. <laughs> You can get a tremendous amount of medical education from Reader's Digest. But uh, I read that there are heat-proof, there are heat-proof microbes that you can boil them for two hours and they still come up smiling. They don't die. But uh, nothing, nothing can stand raw fire. Nothing, nothing can stand raw fire. All life dies before the flame. And so there are evils in the breast that can, that can stand the 
presence of, uh, of all kinds of revival meetings and religious meetings and prayer meetings and there are sins that can get on a board that can take the Lord's Supper that can get baptized but there are no sins that can stand up under the presence of the indwelling God. Now the third thing is that the bush was transfigured by the flame. That bush was only a scrub thorn and acacia bush and there were millions of them growing around there. Uh, and Moses had seen them by the hundreds, but this bush suddenly became the most famous bush in all history and still remains the most famous bush in all history. Its glory was a derived glory. God did not make the bush great. He simply got in the bush and was great in the bush. And so the attention of everybody was called to the bush. The Sunday school teacher was teaching about the bush, and she said, you know, Moses was a great scientist. He was a very observing man. And when he saw the fire burning in the bush, his scientific spirit came out and he said, now I'll go and turn aside and examine this. Imagine that. Those poor kids had to listen to that kind of stuff. The simple fact is, anybody with an IQ above six and seven eight would have turned aside to see a fire in a bush at sundown, miles from human habitation. That's all Moses did. He turned aside to see that bush, that transfigured bush. And it became, it took on meaning. It, it, it got significance there. It itself was related by nature to all the other acacia bushes. And yet nobody ever talks about them, take me. And uh, they all talk about that one bush. Why? Because it had the fire in it. You know, one of the saddest things I know is the anonymity of the average man. Emerson said the average uh, man and woman is only one more couple. And you go out on the highways or down to the street corners or into the far jungle areas, wherever you will, east or west, north or south, and you find thousands of people crawling like animated clothespins over the face of the earth. And then they're born, they live, they suffer, they have a bit of joy, then they die and the place knows them no more. They're, 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 they're faceless, without significance and without meaning. But when Jesus Christ lays hold of a man, the first thing he does is to give him significance. He amounts to something, he gets a face. God gives the man a face and dwells in the man and he becomes transfigured in the fire. And the faceless man touched by the mighty Christ now takes on significance and meaning. And the humblest new convert in the Balim Valley among the Donnies or Monies in New Guinea is more in the kingdom of God than the Churchills and all the rest of the great of the world because they've taken on a, a, a meaning that they never had before and that nobody can have except by the fire. Well, I was going to say, I'm watching that clock, that the fire protected this bush. Uh, I think I'll mention it just briefly. See, no evil could bother that bush as long as that fire was in it. You ever think that a hungry goat browsing at twilight? He didn't go near that bush. He, he, mag he went over and browsed on another one, but he didn't go near that one. And he buzzard lighting to look around. Never lighted on that one. There wasn't a bug that could crawl up it, nor a caterpillar that could lay an egg on it. It was perfectly safe as long as the fire dwelled in it. Now, I believe in separation, but I don't believe in insulation. And uh, I don't believe that it's the will of God that his evangelical believers, his children, should insulate themselves from others. If you won't speak to a man, how can you speak to a man about the Lord? 
if we'd withdraw our holy skirts about us and wrap ourselves in cellophane and mark heaven on us and expect to get there finally when we pass customs, uh, I wonder then, I wonder how we're going to help anybody all insulated like that. No, no. We are to be separated, but certainly we're not thus to be wrapped in cellophane. Monasticism was a historical error, you know, they said, I've got my fire, now I'm going to have to cup it and keep it. So they cupped it and cupped their hand around it so the wind wouldn't blow it out. And they went to the monasteries. It was a great mistake. Now, I honor them for their intention, but it doesn't speak too much for their knowledge of the scriptures. Simeon Stylites was an example, and probably the most horrible example, of an effort to keep good by getting away from folks. He got up on a pillar 30 feet high and stayed 30 years. There he was, and he never came down even to take a bath, never came down for anything. They fed him up there. I'd let him, I'd have starved him down if I'd had it to do myself. But uh, they got it up to him, pulled it up by a rope, and this, now he thought he was being holy. The son of God who walked among men, among publicans and sinners, and talked at the well to a fallen woman, he was holy and pure because the purity was inside of him. And so the Salvation Army Lassie, passing around war cries in a saloon, is just as pure and just as safe from contamination as if she were somewhere in a convent. We do, in fact, pure. We do not become safe by hiding. We become safe by the indwelling fire. I'm perfectly convinced that when God dwells in a human breast, nothing can harm that breast, nothing can harm that individual until God wants him in heaven. I'm not much of a flyer, you know. I was born 30 years too early. But I have to fly. I flew down yesterday. I flew out of what they call in Toronto a gray drizzle. It was gook to me. It was just a, just a, you know. And uh, we flew out of that. As I walked up the plane, I said, Now, Lord, I'm in your hands. It's either Chicago or glory, one or the other. And uh, I have every reason, I have every reason to believe that a man or a woman is perfectly safe while the fire of God's presence dwells in him. And then lastly, the ray I'm going to get through early. It's unheard of in ministerial circles, but I'm going to do it. Maybe this is the most important for us in our work as believers. That bush became beautiful in the fire. Moses, many years later, probably 80, probably 40, 35 years later, wrote, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And I wonder if Moses was not thinking of the beauty of God in that bush, that solemn, wonderful hour when he saw God and met God in the fire, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. You know, the old Greek philosophers, for all the fact they had no revelation, sometimes in their blindness they did blunder close to truth, and they believed that beauty was a part somehow, it was near God. They believed that virtue, that somewhere there was a a central virtue, that because we're intellectual somewhere, there was a central intellect, and they believed there was a central beauty somewhere. Well, Moses knew there was, and he said, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And here was an acacia bush that nobody would have, nobody would have brought home and planted in his yard. It had no beauty, but now this one was beautiful because it was a glow. 
It was a bush burning, and so it was beautiful. The old hymn says, Stay, O beauty uncreated, ever ancient, ever new. The beauty of God was there, and when Jesus came down to become man, his garments smelled of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces. We just passed through another hectic Christmas period, but if you got past the lights and Santa Claus and the rest of it, you could see the beauty of Jesus and smell the fragrance, the aloes and myrrh and cassia from his holy garments. He has, though he was slain on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the fragrance of his life have made the world smell a bit better, this dirty world in which we are, because he was here. Well, there's an attractiveness about the true Christianity. And I don't mind telling you, I'm not as happy a man as I ought to be. I don't want to be irresponsibly happy. I pray God will never allow me to become an irresponsible, uh, happy, jingle-bell Christian. I don't think we ought to be. I think we ought to take the weight and woe of the world and of the church on our shoulders. And we have to be miserable, sanctify your misery, and dedicate it to God and suffer through it. And one of the things I am miserable about part of the time is the unattractiveness of Christianity in our day. The tragedy of unlovely orthodoxy, of unbeautiful Christianity, is without doubt one of the major tragedies of the day. Now, I heard the talk last night given by Brother Bloxner, and uh, he tipped us off that he would say things that we didn't believe, and I tried my best to find something that I couldn't, that I didn't agree with him on. But, uh, you know, he was talking, he gave us a brilliant summation of conditions all over the world. And you know, I, one reason I believe they exist is this. These, these, this mess we're in all over in missions everywhere is that we have taken a decadent, degenerate brand of Christianity and we transplanted it on foreign soil and we believe that we're doing God's service. My friend, it doesn't make a man holy to cross the water, whether he goes over on the Queen Mary or whether he flies by AC jet. He's just the same man when he gets over there as he was when he was here. You can put a donkey on an airplane and fly him to Germany and his ears will still wiggle. And uh, you can put a holy man on a plane and when he gets over there, he's neither less nor more holy than he was before. We in our society, the Christian Missionary Alliance, we do all, we, we do everything but bow down to missionaries, you know. They're, they're sort of a, of a Virgin Mary to us. We get on our knees to them. But uh, I, I've been around on a mission board now for, oh, I forgot how many years, too many. But I've been on a mission board, and I know missionaries pretty well, and they're, they're people, you know. They're just the same as we are. And uh, they will transplant and take with them over yonder the same brand of Christianity they've known here. If they were brought up on cheap religious fiction, they'll soon be writing cheap religious fiction for the literate natives, or nationals, excuse me. And uh, if they sung bouncy choruses over here, they'll be writing bouncy choruses over there. And instead of having pure Christianity, God dwelling in a human breast, we'll have the unlugged, lovely monstrosity of a Western Christianity transplanted on Eastern soil. I don't believe in it, and I wouldn't give a dime to support that. I believe the great tragedy of the hour 
is unattractive, unbeautiful, unlovely Christianity. And the saddest part of it all is that most people don't know how unbeautiful it is. They see the ugly thing that passes for evangelical Christianity today and think that's all there is. When actually what we want and ought to have is the beauty of the Lord our God in human breasts. A winsome magnetic saint is worth 500 promoters and gadgeteers and religious engineers. Used to be, you know, give a man a Bible and a songbook and turn him loose and you had an evangelistic campaign on your hands. Send a missionary over there with a, with a Gillette razor blade to perform surgery and a pair of pliers to pull out teeth and he, you had, uh, you had a uh, missionary. And nowadays you've got to take a course in electronics to get, you know, to get through. Uh, it's, an, it's a big, ugly, top-heavy thing, and sometimes I wonder if it won't be the will of God to break the whole thing down and start over. But how will we start? We'll start with saints, my brothers and sisters. I believe in saints. I've met the, uh, the, uh, the comics, and I've met the promoters, and I've met the founders who puts his name on the front of the building, so people know he founded it. And uh, I have met converted cowboys, not too well converted, and converted pugilists that all got converted but their fists. I have met all kinds of weird Christians throughout the United States and Canada, but uh, my heart is looking for saints. I want to meet the, 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 the people who are like the Lord Jesus Christ. Good many years ago, over in the state of Ohio, I heard an old gentleman losing his sight. Lecture. Now, the odd thing about it is, I don't know what he said. I don't remember what he said. But all I remember is what he looked like. He looked like my conception of Jesus, if Jesus had lived to be old. What a beautiful face. I sat and, and entranced by that beautiful face. But I don't remember too much of his, ser of his sermons. That was Dr. Jonathan Goforth, the great Presbyterian a missionary. Later on, I was preaching in Toronto, and the newspapers came out and said, Dr. Jonathan Goforth has died. He will lie in state in such and such a church. And so the people passed by by the hundreds, and I imagine thousands upon thousands, to look at the face of the man who had looked like Jesus. He'd never written a great book. I don't think he ever did. I've never seen it. He'd never painted a great picture. He'd never founded anything particularly. But he had lived what he believed. And the fire glowed in the bush until Dr. Goforth's face told more than his tongue could tell. And so they went past and looked down on that dead face. Not even death could take away the beauty of the Lord God that had been so long burning in that personality. That is what we need, my brothers and sisters. That is what we need. And so to you, particularly to the young people going out into religious service, I would say this, you're called to be a burning bush. You're called uh, to be a bush that has fire in it. This is the world's sundown, and there are men as Moses alone looking for somebody that looks like God, somebody that has fire in it. A lonely man somewhere is looking your direction. And it's my conviction 
that unlovely Christianity has done more to turn more people away from Christ than all the liberalism in the world, though I'm not a liberal. I'm an evangelical. If you strain it a little and stretch it and uh, put a few footnotes around it, I'm even a fundamentalist. But uh, I at least am an evangelical and an essentialist, a believer in historic Christianity, the faith of our fathers, which is living still. And yet I believe that until evangelical Christianity gets through and meets God in the fire and gets God burning and glowing within it, we're going to have all these troubles and we're not going to solve them by conferences. I'm sorry that I can't believe that we're going to solve them. You're going to do a lot here and I'm for you. But you're not going to solve this one basic problem unless you solve it on your knees. For it's not techniques to follow, methods to be followed. It's the man and his God, God and the man, the man in God and God in the man, the fire of the Holy Ghost burning in the brain.